0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. I thought what we could do is look at one or two pieces and then set the scene, and then uh, then we'll talk about the summer exhibition slightly later on.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Um, Let's start with, I mean, not necessarily right at the beginning, but this is a piece called 2050 that uh, was acquired by Charles Saatchi, and he's moved it to various different venues. I've always felt that um, you've been incredibly honorable, too honorable, I might say, with this piece, because it exists only as one work that one collector owns and can be moved to wherever that collector wants to move it. That's fine. But I, I think you should have made numerous editions of this and it should exist all over the world. But anyway, that, that's, a, that's by the way. Where, um, where did the idea for the reflective room in Sumpoil, which is what this piece is, where did it come from?
1: It's an interesting question because um, this p- particular piece of work uh, came from quite a few notions. It came from a holiday in the Algarve for about a month, where the only thing to do was to be in a swimming pool, and I was really quite taken by the horizontal. It also came from an experience, a previous experience, of making a piece of work at Matt's Gallery in 1985 called Sheer Fluke, where I made a enormous uh, sand mold i also made a foundry in the gallery and i poured uh, buckets and buckets or crucibles and crucibles of aluminium into a form and then i excavated back to leave this beam wedged in the space it could not have arrived on a, an awkward shaped lorry it was something that was actually made physically in the space as a process and so that idea of filling up the mold and revealing again i th- took the idea of the room as being a mould. But the real, the real essence of it was in the studio that I had at the time at Chisenhall Works, there was uh, a barrel of oil in amongst a pile of rubbish and I couldn't really cover it over. And it had this extraordinary reflective surface to it. Uh, and it was also something I didn't know how to lose. You know, There's certain things you can quite easily get rid of. But uh, a barrel of oil which I'd been using for annealing steel. I'd been working on some steel works at that time. It was very difficult to get rid of. And it was a combination of all those kind of thoughts and being away thinking about making an idea for the Matz Gallery in 1987, that previous experience of the mould, everything else in the swimming pool thinking, what can I do, what can I do? And it, it just came as this idea of, why don't I just fill the room up with this reflection? And, it it really started to make sense. I mean, I was then, at that point in my career, tampering with playing around with architecture, and I think really the essence of all this is that the TARDIS, which we know in Doctor Who, where the interior space is much bigger than its exterior, it was like trying to pull that off. How can I make a TARDIS in the gallery? How can I make the, the space that we understand, our preconception of that space, how can I challenge it so we are shocked? And
0: uh, space is, of course, everything, but at the same time, sleight of hand, an illusion, playing with the notion of the trompe l'oeil is also there in this piece, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is that it's done with, uh, first of all, with a material that... Isn't really on the, uh, let's say, the sculptor's vocabulary of materials. But it's, it's actually a hazardous waste material. But it doesn't
0: fill the room in the way that you think it has. It's
1: relatively well. Thin. That's tr- that's true. But you're giving the, the sorry, <laughs> sorry. Giving, the, giving it away, Tim. So <laughs> um, that's me out of the I magic the, the, circle. The, if... the interesting question has always been like, my God, how deep is it? And I've always said as deep as you want it to be. Although in Japan, well, I go. did say deeper than thought. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so I've, I've now blown it, but, the, <laughs> but the, the notion of how one does it is, is, is intriguing. I mean, was that problematic for you? I mean, is, is one of the things that will become clear as, as people, as we go through one or two works in your career, is you have brilliant ideas, but you also realize them brilliantly. And actually, having an idea is one thing, but how you actually make it manifest is, is, yeah. is, is the majority of the work, in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I had a very interesting uh, moment in my career when I met Robin Klasnick, and I worked with him, I've forgotten how long. I, I met him in 1985, he gave me a show immediately. I left in about 1993, I think. This is Matt's gallery, the Matt's East End, gallery. for those of you um, who've never been. He only did solo shows at that time, and you could do whatever you wanted in the space. The space was not precious, Um you know, you couldn't do this in the new Tate Extension, for example. There would, be, there would be issues in doing it in certain spaces. But with his space, you could be rather cavalier. And my ideas at the time, and hopefully still are at my age, um, were sort of that... To try and challenge preconceptions, one's got to break a lot of rules. And so a lot of the ideas that I have were trying to sort of... To trying to make things that can't be made or not allowed to be made or impossible to be made or, you know, there's things about them that make them quite difficult. Um, and, and, and I think that's where that experience with Matt's gallery, it gave me enough time to really challenge what, what I thought sculpture could be.
0: I show this piece, which is called, she came in through the bathroom window. Cause this was a piece that you, you did at Matt's gallery. This
1: is, this is my uh, second from last piece at Matt's gallery. And this is 1989. The reflection in the oil in 1987 was, fab- was fabulous. I mean, it was December, January we opened, and so snow came down and met itself, and birds flew upside down. And when I had an invitation to go back and make another piece two years later, uh, a specific work for the space, um, it was a very difficult uh, exhibition to follow. You know, once you'd done the oil, the oil caught so many people's attention that I thought, my God, what, how can I go one better? And you are rather g on in this country to go one better. You know, you can't sit with one thing. And this time, rather than physically double the space or through an illusion doubling the space, this time I physically reduced the space. I brought the window in and made the space very, very constricted and tight. And you had to awkwardly squeeze around this piece of work. And it's just a case of undoing the window and bringing it into the room. So the outside world had expanded, but the interior, the, the architecture as we know it, had decreased.
0: I, I always see your work as <clears throat> not self-contained, but that each project is so specific to a, a set of conditions that may be architectural, but also you know, physical, economic, and so on, that I've never quite seen you as a serial artist. This is the first time, when you, when you talked about this, in relation to f- 2050, the oil piece, that I realised, of course, there are complete lines of continuity and that one work does begat another, begats another.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've always been fascinated by Barry Flanagan, pre the Hairs, where... I would go and see a show knowing it was Barry I'd be absolutely shocked at what it, you know it'd be etchings of lawns or grass it would be folded blankets it would be rope and sand and I like that or it'd be a film or it'd be the hole in the sea or something like that and I quite like the idea that rather than having a brand or having a fix on a particular style that that although they knew it was the artist Richard Wilson that there'd be a surprise coming because you wouldn't know what you're going to get and I've always maintained that. And it's not, let's say, commercially the best practice, but there is a continuity throughout, but it's more conceptual as opposed to uh, uh, the visual, in that, you know, if you're tampering with architecture, that's your given. That's the, that's the thing that ties all these things.
0: You, you mentioned Barry Flanagan, and, uh, I mean, in, it's fairly reductive, but it's still, I think, broadly speaking, applies. You can see a kind of sequence of generations, particularly in British sculpture, that you know would start with Moore and Hepworth and then would go through what w- was called the geometry of fear, as Herbert Reed christened, that generation that showed in the early 50s in the Venice Biennale, um, and then new generations, so that would be Caro, King, Tucker, and so on, at St. Martins, and Flanagan was seen as the, as the pivotal figure in that conceptual generation yeah. that included Richard Long, Erwin George, Bruce MacLean, and others. You're clearly from that conceptual tradition but you're never grouped as closely, um, and yet here you are, um, an academician, part of perhaps you know the most exclusive and extraordinary and bizarre club of artists in the world. Choosing my words carefully, Do you, what, yeah. <laughs> what, what, where where <laughs> did, did you
1: feel part of a particular group when you were it? emerging? No, as that's an a really interesting question. I think there's a there's a show to be had by a museum because. As you say, the new generation at Whitechapel. Uh, at that point, there seemed to be a cut-off, and particularly where sculpture cuts off there, and it comes right back in 1983 with Nicholas Logsdale and that other new generation. Yeah, called, it was
0: called, rather unimaginatively,
1: the New British Sculptors. It was That's Craig Kapoor, right. yeah, Deacon, yeah. Woodrow. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think, I might be wrong here, but I think that came out of the Haywood. Show where there was new sculpture. Was it or British sculpture? So it's and objects and sculpture just, was ICA and yeah. Bristol. But anyway, there was a whole. But, a whole but what that meant is, in the history of sculpture, the contemporary history of sculpture, there is a gap between when that Whitechapel show was and when Nicholas and and that British sculpture show happened. And I'm in that bracket where there's quite a few of us sculptors. That I mean, it's, God forbid, some of them have passed on now, but. Uh, we were all sort of henched up in Butler's Wharf and all working together, and, um, or over at Stepney Green at that studio over there. Uh, you know, London based artists, sculptors, and a couple of them from Hornsey College of Art, like Daryl Viner, for instance. Uh, you know, and, but somehow we weren't picked up on. And I think there was a moment in our generation where if you were doing anything that looked like what anyone else was doing, you know, you, you gave up doing it. You'd find something that no one else was doing. So we were all sort of trying to be radical and be very different to each other. And in a way, I don't think that was really where the style was. You had to be a house style or you had to be a certain ism or you were working with steel and, or architectural cut-offs of, uh, of uh, material or something like that. Somehow, we were all investigating very much from the conceptual side. And I think that was coming out of Hornsey College of Art for me. Yeah, and
0: that's also... I think in 75 there was an exhibition at the Hayward called The Condition of Sculpture where William Tucker was the curator and it was a a kind of debate really about the status of the object in sculpture and it was only in the early 80s that the object made a comeback into the mainstream. Now, I suppose to some people listening that may be ridiculous, how can sculpture not be an object? But the notion of sculpture in the expanded field, sculpture being in some ways the most fluid of all media... It was, was, was very exciting in, in some ways. But yours wasn't merely a conceptual gesture, was it? It was actually about
1: the realisation through physical material yeah, I mean, how uh, you reconfigure a yeah, space. Yeah, well, I, I knew what I was playing with. I mean, I'd started off as an object maker... Um, but I became more fascinated by the site in which the work should sit in. And I started building the floors that they went on. It developed out of that. And I think also I was looking at that art pauvre period, you know, poor art, and I was sort of scrabbing around for money and just finding, you know, I mean, with the oil, I used to go and take it from garages. I'd say, can I take buckets of this stuff and drive up and cut the stuff away. I never ever told them what I was doing. And works like this, you know, I mean, there was money involved, but you're only using what's around you. Um, by, by that, I mean, you know, the window is is part of the gallery and you just take it out, you box it back. And it's, a, to explain, it's very simple, but, but, but and conceptually, it's really, really loaded. But economically, it's a very, very easy and quite cheap piece to make. The problem is, cons- all of that conceptual and uh, eco- economic isn't really a commercial value, well, no, didn't, and I think no I'd rather, I I just stuck with this, and that was that's what's made my work quite unique. Not that I'm against a commercial value, you know, I'm really behind all of that idea. But with these pieces, they were site specificity. They seemed to go against the grain at the time. People were just beginning to really make the object, and I seemed to find myself at the 180 degree end of that, which was to take the the buildings and i think really the other influence apart from povera was looking at the land artists from america walter de maria michael heiser robert uh, smithson robert smithson and certainly gordon Matter clark you know i came to gordon very much later on but this idea that you could take the space and make the space or enlist the space as part of the work was fascinating for me so I based myself on someone who was like this nomad who went off and just worked in at invitation at galleries. Let me be vulgar. How did you make a living at the time? <laughs> <laughs> what, legally or illegally? <laughs> uh, well, no, I was, ma- I was making... A, uh, this uh, Around about this time, uh, 1989, I was uh, actually... I had a reputation, and I was selling drawings and maquettes and stuff like that. But pre that, I was working with a performance artist called Anne Bean and a radical percussionist called Paul Berwer. And we were in a a, a performance ensemble. Basically, we were back to first principles of sound making. And I did one gig with them at Butler's Wharf, which led to another. And the third one was in Rotterdam. And 11 years later, we disbanded. But I made a lot of money out of that. Uh, And that's what paid for the sculptures.
0: Did you not reconfigure at the Burlington Gardens Festival?
1: I did a tiny little thing, but no longer with Anne Bean and Paul Burwell. I sometimes no, work with I was Anne to Bean. Be... Paul, Paul Bowell died, actually. it uh, was no, just at the festivals ago. tomorrow, so I was using that as a plug. But yeah, you did... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I still, I still... Um, it was the Beau Gamelan ensemble was the, was the orchestra and, and we, were, we were sort of very Thatcherite in one sense, we took rubbish, we, took, we went to scrap all over the world, we could perform in any space, we built the instruments and we were just the, the engineers or the technicians to keep it all going. But it was first principles of sound making, so all this stuff was manual percussion, uh, um, mechanised percussion. We worked with steam boilers and steam whistles and steam engineers, and we started blowing lots of steam. And we worked with pyrotechnicians who made octaves for so us. So it was quite radical at the time. I remember you
0: turned the Tyne Bridge into an instrument, didn't you?
1: That was a piece many years ago, 1989. She uh, That was called... Uh, God, what was it? One Piece at a Time. And that was a response to a TSWA 3D exhibition, Nine Artists Around Great Britain. And you could choose a site. And I choose, I chose the echoing chamber of one of the footings of the bridge which was on the venue as it were and put in a proposal and it was successful and it's 1200 car parts that fell down over five weeks and crashed down into the empty hollow chamber reverberated but as they crashed down probably about 40 parts a day so you'd have a car engine thumped down a door a bonnet part of a wheel or whatever These sounds were recorded and they were handed backwards and forwards. It gets a bit complicated, but basically what happened is the visual experience of the work disappeared up into the ceiling, 95 feet up. But the acoustical experience started to multiply as you recorded more and more sounds. So when you went in on the last day, there was like 40 pieces left in the ceiling. But you had this cacophony of recorded sounds and you were in a cage protected and this stuff was just bashing around you. So I'd forgotten all about that piece of work actually. Since <laughs> <No>, <laughs> so I, long ago, see, <laughs> um, I just want to go now forwards in time,
0: because what's interesting about a lot of um, what you did <clears throat> is the notion of how art in the public domain can exist and operate. And what seems interesting to me, I mean, this piece is you tell us about a minute, but Slipstream, this is at Terminal 2 at Heathrow, um, is a wonderful rethinking of the notion of the monument and and, and how the work can exist in the public domain. I mean, it is absolutely not uh, traditional plaza art, but it plays with that idea and presumably it's informed by much of what you did over the previous 20, 30 years. But it might be worth you explaining how this form came about.
1: Yeah, this is a very recent large-scale piece of work. By large scale, I mean, it's not as big as the terminal. Um, This is the new uh, Queen Elizabeth II terminal at Heathrow, Terminal 2. And this is the space between where you arrive to meet people or get on an aeroplane. And it's the cavity between that and the terminal building itself. It's actually a space now that you have to build with new airports. It's, it's deemed as a, a, a bomb moat. It's a space between the terminal and where you park your cars and everything else, where the buses arrive, trains arrive. And they were going to have planting in this space. And it was recognised that through the architectural design, there wasn't enough light level to sustain growth. So that growth of the planting, so that meant that budget had to be used in some other way. And that was just transported across to an idea that perhaps a sculpture could be there. And I think really the hidden agenda there is that, y- yes, you are arriving at the cultural capital of the world, and it starts when you get off that aeroplane. You've arrived, and you've got to have something there. And I think that's how I secured the beard. That's the lecture I gave them. And it was uh, it's 78 metres long, 77 tonne, and it's actually... It's very difficult to explain what it is. It's a conundrum of space. But if you can imagine a fictitious scenario, let's say I filled this whole space with clay, and I picked up a, a stump plane, and I just threw it through that clay, and it made a hole. And I filled that hole with plaster, Then I excavated the clay away. That shape that was in plaster, let's say, is what we actually manufactured. And it was a, the extreme end of engineering at that point. We were using uh, a, a very new... Uh, program at the time from Boeing to put all this piece together and it was i have to say it was a team of 83 people it wasn't me it was my idea you know i had the idea but uh, and this will give you an idea how that idea came about you, this is the breakthrough when i was sort of going to meetings we finally managed to get the you know this is me with my scribbles i had an aeroplane and, and a hamster ball oh, yeah. this one yes yeah, I was going along to meetings with a clear hamster ball with an aeroplane and bowling it along the floor. I was showing so many drawings, and people were still a bit nervous about it. So I sat with the engineer, and we managed to put this together. And it's the aeroplane just spiralling in space... But I hope that sort of fictitious scenario of the aeroplane tumbling, it's not flying, it's a, you're using the plane as an object, just sort of throwing it. But the thing is, it sort of gives, it gives the passenger a sense of that aerodynamic velocity and speed. And it's got a bit of that sort of British garden shed, build the blue, bluebird or something like that. You know, it's, it's made in a very particular way with pop riveted aluminium over a carcassing of, of plywoods and steel. Um, and then
0: there's also a different approach to Monterey. Let's start with where it was to begin with here. Because um, this is wonderfully British, and it's, well, Italian job, but I think you should... It's called... Hang on a minute, lads, I've got an idea.
1: Yes, what it... Yeah. <laughs> a great idea. Great idea. <laughs> yeah, this is... this. This was... Uh, and and probably the last this was the second rooftop commission at the dilawar pavilion a beautiful mendelssohn piece of architecture sitting down at bexhill-on-sea and i was invited by the late alan hayden who was the director at the time to follow on from an idea of a, uh, a roof project and Anthony Gormley was the first one and he used the roof terrace and he put some figures up there and I thought well Anthony's used that area I don't really think I can use that so what I started to look at was in fact the part of the building that no one really looks at because it's where the dustbins are, it's where the car park is the, the, the best vantage, visual vantage point of this building is from the sea approach so you're looking with the sea behind you and it's absolutely beautiful but from the road it didn't really make much sense but what you've got here is this beautiful cantilevered window, and you've got this approach to the work, and you've got this sort of extraordinary epic building, and it has to be a plinth for an artwork. And I was thinking, I need to do something, somehow bring, co- bring attention to the edges of the building, not the planes of the building, but the, the, just the edges, the silhouette, the outline of the building, what can I do? It needs something like that coach on that cliff edge in that film. And I went away thinking and thinking, and it boiled down to, why don't I just put the, a facsimile of the coach on there so it's teetering on the edge? And, of course, it was at the time... It was 2.12, It's the time of the Olympics, and it was a cultural Olympi- Olympiad um, project. And so what we did is we got rid of the, f- the flagpoles there, you can see. We got rid of the flag, and because this, f- this beautiful coach is red, white and blue, as it is in the film, that became the flag-waving piece for our... For our Olympic team who were going for gold, like these, for gold yeah. like these people were going for gold So it all started to configure and make sense But it was also about that thing of as an athlete is really on the edge of winning or losing. It's like how far Can an artist go with ideas? So it was that sense of it can happen or it can't happen It's it's really being on that fulcrum point and this was the metaphor for that piece of work
0: and actually Not not only was it an extraordinarily deft piece of engineering to suspend this coach on the edge and make it rock, I mean, to make it look precarious but make it safe is is, is no mean feat, but you deliberately fabricated the coach. In other words, it was a facsimile. It wasn't an actual coach. Why?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, very interesting. I wouldn't have... Um, fabricated it if a coach had existed. But that coach was made in 1963 and was finally scrapped, I think, in 1968, 1970. You mean the, the well, type, the model, yeah. But basically, I, I thought, what we'll do is we'll, we'll find a coach. And... Um, of, of It's called a Mark I Harrington Legionnaire. No such coach exists on the planet. In fact, no drawings exist on the planet. So what I had to do was think, rethink the whole idea. Do I make a facsimile? And I've, not re- I've always dealt with the real world and real stuff, and to actually make a coach was a nerve-wracking moment. I thought this could kill the idea. But in actual fact, because uh, close scrutiny, let's say uh wasn't going to be possible i thought well if i could make something up that would that would look like the coach and we've got a team onto it a, a professional team and they produced that i found all the information that they needed i found all the photographs in fact i found a mark II, which is slightly slightly different and i spent two days measuring with a couple of uh architectural students we measured the whole coach we had every dimension. And then we adapted that to make this one. I have to say, I was really happy with the piece and I was comfortable in doing that. But if I'd found the, if I'd found the coach, I would have bought the coach and done it with a real one. I didn't know. That's interesting. I didn't realise. I mean, part of me...
0: Knows that you work with the found object, but I thought the notion of reproducing in a slightly caricatured, yeah. but at the same time yeah. nerdishly exact yeah. replica yeah. was
1: part well, of the piece. It's interesting because it worked perfectly because it is—it is what it is. You know, you can see—you can see—it is a facsimile of the film almost. You know, it's, it's referring back to that very British movie. It's the seaside fun ride at the end of the pier it's all of those kind of things those connotations but in actual fact i think it's that thing of cut the coat to suit the cloth if we'd had more in the budget i probably would have gone to a coach builder and had a coach built but because these things are dictated by certain circumstances be it bureaucracy or technical skill or finance we ended up going to uh, fabricating firm that build artworks and they, I think they treated it in that way. We had many discussions, we looked at images on the computer, then we pressed the button. I also like the idea. I mean I did see it close up, more of which in a minute, um,
0: in, in Hong Kong. But I like the fact you make a work to be seen at distance. And in fact, you know, for example, <laughs> Michelangelo's David was made to be seen in a niche high up on the wall of the cathedral. Mm. We now see it close-up in our space, or relatively close-up, it's on a plinth, um, but distancing and how we experience things and the detail we're supposed to see and that which we do is an interesting arena in art,
1: I think. Well, exactly. I mean, with all these pieces, I, I, it's not the first time this question's arisen, but there is a situation or a, a sense of that I do manipulate my audience. I mean, in this situation, I was... Uh, fortunate in that this road that you see here is the road that leads you the main road that leads you into Bexhill, Bex Hill. So what you do get is that long-range or distance vista. To the work and to the building and the grandiousness of the building with the grandiousness of that film moment linked together made sense then you can get underneath it so people were here taking selfies you know looking up you know down at the camera with the thing teetering above them and at the same time you can see people up on the terrace there where anthony had his sculpture so i was i was fortunate in that i wasn't designing it so that i was trying to find particular viewpoints. But it was fortunate that building lent itself to be able to do that. In the same way, I was manipulating people, I suppose, by having a corridor into the oil. Uh, I was squeezing people with the windows. So it's not that I wanted to create some sort of... I was going to say event, but to create some sort of situation for the person where where I'm, I'm manipulating them. I didn't want to do that, but there seems to be something, an underlying thing within certain works where you do manipulate. The oil piece, 2050, it was interesting that in the end... Um I
0: mean, they, were they handled it reasonably well, but there was always a guard that gave you a kind of lecture as to what it was and what you couldn't do because people <laughs> quite literally leant over and put their face in the oil as they
1: looked. Or, no, I think that the, happened many times, actually. <laughs> and, and, and a woman fancy draped a fur coat through so it, trade, really, didn't no, no. she? Well, someone tried to sue me once up in Scotland. I mean, the piece has been made many, many times, as you say. Um, I have to say that Charles has been very good about that. He would always phone me and say, listen, there's a request for it to go to wherever wherever and what is interesting I've always maintained it's not site-specific and I know that's very difficult because when it was made that was what it was written up about as like the most classic iconic site-specific work ever made but in actual fact it can go anywhere that I say it can go if I agree it's that space you make another one And that was quite an anomaly at the time for people, you know, because people said, how do you move it? And you say, well, you, you don't, you make another one. So they can have two at the same time? Yeah, why not? So there'd be one in London, and there'd be one elsewhere around the globe somewhere. And I quite like that. And in fact, it's only a tank that's slotted or built to fit within the topology of the walls. There's no sort of screwing into the walls and fixing it to the architecture. And when... You know, when the program's finished for whatever gallery or museum, it just gets scrapped. And this saying all those things to people, they just couldn't believe that that could be an artwork. But that's how... It, it's almost like a lot of the work seemed to be about the sense of architecture as event. And in a way, this is a kind of an event piece. There is a permanence about it. And certainly for the future, because it's going to another museum. But, um, you know, the fact that you can go and make hundreds of these things around the world and you just chuck them away afterwards. And I kind of quite like that because it it wasn't about two fingers up to the other way of doing things. It was just saying there are other ways of looking at this, looking at the way sculptures can be. And if you are invited to make a piece of work and someone says you've got five weeks, which is what the car pieces were doing in the bridge, it had to last for five weeks, so why not turn it into an event rather than make something solid and static, uh, make something that sort of somehow evolves i mean we we're, we're not objects you know our lives aren't objects this thing's not an object they're all things that we borrow use that fall apart and we th- things seem to, you know there's nothing static anymore everything's moving 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 and i just thought well maybe art at that point in my career art could be the same thing and then actually this this
0: piece the hang on a minute lads there was a chance to put it in Hong Kong with the Royal Academy, Absolutely. which we did at the Peninsula Hotel, and um, which is a kind of old landmark in Kowloon. Um, but interesting, so something that existed—there's your room. <laughs> <laughs> pretty well was, something that existed as a, in a very specific context, as you yeah. say, can be moved and it slightly changes it changed it, its it, meaning.
1: Well, the thing—the thing was, it did feel quite poignant to that iconic building by putting that iconic moment of a film that we all knew in the UK in a post-colonial and I, Hong Kong and I didn't quite I didn't quite I didn't feel f- so comfortable about it first of all I had to think about it and I had to think about a new rationale for it but what I, I've always said is it's just the incongruity of this piece that what it does is it makes the passer-by in the street stop and do this kind of thing because as an artist with an artwork, with a sculpture. You can change people, you can do something that causes people to do that. And this idea that you pull attention to the building was perfect, that made absolute sense. But it was no longer about a cultural Olympiad project. But it was a red, white and blue flag. But it's also the sort of conundrum up there, how did it get up there? Seven floors up, and this thing is teetering, and people just gathered in the street and watched it. And that means it's great. I mean, there's three things really about works like this i mean th- that space has a history it has a context so you can't just come and dump something there was an invitation tim tim's programming that invitation for three artists i was a, the first one but the first thing is, it has to be a good piece of work and i felt it was good then in t- 212 that we could do it again um second third things are to do with what's it going to do for the building or it's pr- or, or the context of the site and the, and the third thing is Know, if it's a good piece of work, how is it going? How are people going to respond to it? You know, what are you hoping to get from people? And I just think this is absolutely perfect response to doing something like that. To have people crossing over to Kowloon from Central Island because they'd heard about it, specifically as it was during the um, Hong Kong Biennale, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it had it, it, it had a con- context to exist in, and of course the hotel that. Those selfies went round the world. They really loved it. I mean, it was fabulous press for them because you've got the Peninsula Hotel written there and you've got that above it, so...
0: Well, Time magazine had it as one of its images of the year, which we were, which we were very proud of. And I just wondered, though, whether... I mean, hearing you talk, you, you, your, your work is... You approach it... I mean, there's a kind of... Um, There isn't a difference between something that could be there as a public monument and something that could be there for a few days You know, they're both events to a certain extent. They both play with the idea of the monument But could this ever be anywhere permanent or is there something about the nature of the way you conceived it? mechanically and in terms of its structure that means it is by definition a temporary event a temporary installation
1: the the concept of this piece of work is is always seen as something that is purchasable and permanent uh, we'd have to alter this somewhat to increase its permanence, uh, and that's not a, that's just a technical, simple, simple project. In actual fact, I did make a proposal that wasn't successful, but there was a bus station in Canada that uh, were looking for a rooftop sculpture, and I put this forward as an aluminium project. You know, it, built it might an be almost too, too close for comfort. And, and it didn't get anywhere, unfortunately. I thought it would, but you know this. What one does is one has to try and find those people that might, or those corporate industries that might be interested in taking something like this. And there's always been people inquiring, and I had an inquiry the other week from someone who's got a place up north that was interested in seeing if they could uh, borrow the piece, but there was no talk about whether it's how permanent that was. But the idea is that it would be lovely to put this somewhere permanently on a, a roof, yeah. But I think one's got to think about the context. I wouldn't... Well, it depends how much you pay, but... (laughs) I wouldn't just sort of say, yes, go ahead. I'd have to look to see if the piece worked properly. Now, that's a very difficult... Or the piece was right for its destination. It's a difficult thing to explain, but when you say things look right, you know, you've got to make sure that the piece is going to fulfil itself, and therefore it's got to be available to a public, it's got to be able to be glanced close to and probably from a distance. There's certain criteria I would look for. So, you can
0: deal with engineers fabricators, traffic planners, urban planners, architects. You can generate ideas, you can deal with billionaire collectors, millionaire collectors, art fairs, biennales, curators, museum directors. You see where I'm going on this. (laughs) So how was it working with your fellow Royal Academicians (laughs) as the overall convener of the summer exhibition of 216? It must have been a doddle.
1: Yeah, well... uh... Uh, it's like I've always said, I do pressure incredibly well. <laughs> I never do stress. If I, if I thought it was going to be stressful, I wouldn't have done it. I, I, the hidden agenda again here was that uh, our president, Chris Lebrun, had headhunted me for three years, uh, and I'd run out of excuses to say no. Um, and it, it also got to a point where I thought, well, there's, you know, there, there was a model that Michael had laid down last year, which I thought was a very, very good model. And I thought, if I do this, if I should... I went away and thought about it. I thought, if I do this, I'll have a word with Michael. That coincided with an unfortunate situation where I did lose a big project uh, up north, and it gave me about four or five weeks a break from my other stuff. So I thought about it. I went and saw Christopher I said, yes, I'll do it. What does it entail by way of time? And he said, well, you come up with any idea you want, and then you do all the selection and this, that, and the other. And I realised that... It really is about how much you make a commitment I could have I could have just delegated and disappeared or I could have taken it on wholeheartedly and made it work the way I wanted it and I'd thought well if I get the idea it's a bit like all of this once you've got the idea it's terribly easy to complete you can delegate you can talk to professionals you can have fabricators do things I can get my teams on it whatever but getting the idea is the is the crux of all of this it's the nugget that is the one that really affects me and troubles me, and I mistrust ideas completely. And by that, I I get an idea, and I'll run with it for months and months and months and torture it till I think it's absolutely perfect. That means fine-tuning everything. At that point, if I'm happy, I'm willing to let it go. And I did that with this invitation. I looked at it, I thought about it, I thought, what can I do? And I went and saw Michael, had an evening with him and chatted. And I said, I'm going I'm to borrow your model and I'm going to see how that works. And I came up with a particular issue that is current to the Academy members, which is a vote on whether we should change a 248-year-old ruling which says a Royal Academician has to be a distinguished individual in their artistic field and I questioned and I'm not the only one I'm not the first one individual and I know that currently there are duos and more family or on assemble or you know more two or more that are making art that is no longer subjected to scrutiny by galleries and and directors of galleries where they see it as being dodgy financially these are very successful artists and so I decided first of all to make a show within the show like Michael did he made a show of artists he felt hadn't had due recognition over the age of 60 so I made my Duo show. Did I say he did that? No. He, no. The, 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 he, he chose people who hadn't had their, their due recognition. I, I did the duo show. But on top of that, I, I also had met in 2013, fortunately in Nagoya, a very interesting Japanese artist. And I thought, well, what I'll try and do is bring over some of his work as well. And that triggered a whole series of other little events. I hadn't thought that we could get Gilbert and George in our duo exhibition. They famously don't do group shows. And they famously, they haven't done a group show almost for 30 years. Um, and when we had that opportunity, they almost became a separate project in themselves. There was another exciting offer that came to us, actually, of look Atman's... Uh, uh, piece of work, 10,000 portraits. So, the the sabanchi portrait. Uh, and that was offered to us with all costs. And we thought, well, we can't turn that down. It was a great big hit at the uh, Venice Biennale. So what happened is once I got involved, things started to snowball. And, you know, it got really exciting. And I think if it's not exciting, you don't do it. You have to be excited by these things. And I got very excited. And because I get excited, I get very involved. Um, and I'd, I'd certainly put the hours in. I mean, I made a, I made a strict ruling, nothing after 10 and nothing before 5pm. Um, I did have to break that sometimes, but pretty much we did that. And you have to remember, it wasn't me. We had a hanging committee of nine others, so making us 10. And we had Edith Devaney, head of summer exhibition, who was terrific. I mean, she pulled out all the stops with her team as well. And so it was a great big group attempt and it was it was fun there was the intense moment at the beginning up to about December and then there was the selection round about March and then there was the intensive eight week period that we've just done to sort of hang the whole show so there was gaps in between that allow me to do other, other stuff but of course you know I'm well versed in juggling lots of projects at the same time it's not something new to me it is new to be a curator but because Did, you I you found fun he... in it, I, th- I think it, it, I worked.
0: worked. D- Damien Hurst once said um, that he felt that he, in a sense, he said that he felt he was a number of different artists and that he was curating himself as this multiplicity of different artists every time he made a show. Having had the experience of curating this show, does, in, does, does your, do your own projects now feel more self-curated or do you value the relationship of a curator or a director more?
1: Good question. I think. Don't be I think I, was, I think I saw the experience as a challenge, and I remember being very surprised several years ago with the Yokohama Triennale that I'd been invited to, and the then director had walked off stage, and I think it was Anzai, uh, not Anzai. Um, gosh, I've forgotten the architect's name, but this architect. Tadirando. It might have been Ando, yes, it might have been Ando. And Ando had walked off in disgust at certain rulings that he couldn't uh, overcome. And they brought in an artist, and that was my friend Tadashi Kawamata. And I thought, what's Tadashi doing, stopping making his work and curating for a whole year? You know? And when I saw him, I mean, I'd never seen him so happy. He was really enjoying it. I thought, Jesus, you know, he's brave. And I, I reflected, first of all, on that experience when I went away from seeing Christopher. And I thought, well, actually, artists aren't ostriches. You don't spend all your life in the studio with your head in the sand saying, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm working. You can't get an idea unless you have an experiential life. You've got to go out and do stuff, you know, go to the movies or whatever, eat, drink, blah, blah, blah. Um, The... This was just another string to that bow. It was another string to being able to go out and experience something that was so not so distant from what I do, but could inform me. And I found it quite humbling, actually, that I was no longer in my own ego. I was looking at all these other egos and dealing with all these other artists and thinking about about their work. And it's not like teaching, which I have done many, many years ago, but I I got quite excited about it, and that's why I decided to give time to it, to, to make sure that, number one... I wasn't seen as the laughing stock because my head would have rolled if this show hadn't worked. Uh, and if you're going to do it, you do it to the best of your ability. It's basically what I was brought up with.
0: You mentioned ego, but you didn't put a major work of your own in the middle of the exhibition. I mean, I
1: would have welcomed that. But <laughs> were you tempted or was it just no time? It was a time thing, basically. Um, there was nothing available on the, at, the, at that time that hadn't already been shown. Um, there are two maquettes in there, which are proposals for future works, which, you know, find the funding, and we'll you know, we'll do them anywhere on the planet. And they are big, big pieces, one kinetic work, one static work. So I think what I was doing is I was breaking my own rule. i I made a decision years ago never to show work that hadn't been, uh, let's say, show work show work that had never been seen before, and by that I mean there's been situations in the past where I've shown scribbles, drawings, ideas, and you get ripped off. Artists will say, that's a good idea, and they'll find a, another way of doing it, and it, it leaves the door closed on you. You can't go and do it because they'll say, oh, have you seen that artist? They've done that. And, it, and it's rather disconcerting to sort of, you know, be told, Jesus, someone's... Because <laughs> I've seen that happen with, with work. Um, so I broke the rules this year for myself in terms of showing things that have never been uh, made before. And
0: you've also, I mean, th- we, we won't know until the General Assembly votes on it. But the signs are that the Academy is ready to move now on the notion of duos and others being electable as artists, which is a, a huge breakthrough in a sense, isn't it? Well, I
1: think that's I think that's the sort of the the the, uh, the, the best thing about this is that there is a ongoing uh, situation where there's been, there will be, I know, a change in the rules uh, because of, let's say, what I've done in 2016 with the Summer Exhibition. There's, there's been a General Assembly ruling, we've had a vote, that's all to say that we agree that we should be able to. That goes to Council, which you'll discuss, I presume, in July, and then it'll come back for ratification to the General Assembly, where we'll say, yes, we can now vote for those and then they those members that are duos or not members those that we think would become members are then put in as nomination for voting on so yeah. i i would predict that by certainly early next year we will have a duo That's going to be something. It is. (laughs) And to celebrate it, I'm going to borrow some landscapes
0: by uh, the Welsh artist, Richard Wilson, and put it (laughs) next to yours and do a show called Richard Wilson's. By Richard Wilson. Um, Finally, before I briefly throw you to the floor for questions, There's there's another interesting thing about the Academy. I didn't know we were going to be discussing Academy history tonight, but it's a a good thing to do. You're elected as a sculptor, and you are a sculptor, and sculpture is an expansive and expanding and expandable practice, as you you show. But it is interesting that artists working in film... I mean, Tacita Dean, I think, is elected as a painter. I think Gillian Waring is a printmaker, or she might be a sculptor. We don't have categories. And that's another thing that's debated. And all I would say is that having been at various meetings and uh, august gatherings where it is debated, and the best that people can come up with is you have another category called Other.
1: I, I know, it's <laughs> terrible. I don't think it works.
0: In some ways, keeping the traditional categories and playing with them or subverting them isn't yeah. such a bad thing. Where do you stand on that?
1: Well, I've, I've, I've always said we should just be artists. I don't think we need to have are distinctions, because you do that anyway in conversation. You do that through how you're known. Um, So I disagree with the title of Other, but it does bring me back to my experiences at art school in the very, very early 70s, because there was painting, sculpture, printmaking and Other, and then it was 4D, kinetic art, multimedia. I mean, there were so many labels of this other, but that other is prominent in our art world today, in our contemporary practice, and I just think we're all practising artists and I think we should just all wear our medals with the same ribbon. We are artists. Can I say, Richard, everyone felt that last year's Summer Exhibition, which broke
0: records for attendance and uh, and the generation of revenue to fund the schools would be a, a virtually impossible act to follow and it looks like you're following it and you may well surpass it. So can I thank you hugely for that, but also for, um, for talking and being as candid and uh, entertaining and insightful as you always are and good luck with the, um, the car crash piece. Thank you, thank you Richard, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs>